You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Well, over the past 40 years, since 1968, I've done many hundreds of interviews and media programs and lectures for colleges, universities, the United Nations, Voice of America, the State Department, the White House, the Congressional Record, and more recently... Too many radio and TV interviews to mention whether, well, they be, well, they could be National Geographic History, Discovery Channels, or our works with the shows with German and Russian and United Kingdom programming. The books that I've written, America's Secret Destiny, Founding Fathers, Secret Society, and United Symbolism of America, have now been published in German, Russian, French, Spanish, Mexican, and Japanese. Boy, you should see that Japanese version. It's a gorgeous one. But, even after all of that, it was not until the airing of History Channel's secrets of the Founding Fathers that I encountered the greatest deception on this subject in my lifetime. Now, there were many in the media film world who agreed with me, and then they soon called, they called me and asked me, Hey, let's do something about this. Let's right some of the wrongs perpetuated by the new young Turks now in control at the History Channel. A few weeks back, we completed our interviews that will be aired in a two-hour special again on Discovery Channel in America, but also it will be aired worldwide on a series of other networks, including, I believe it's A&E. It's called Finding the Lost Symbol. But tonight, we are spending time with the author of Solomon's Builders, Freemasons, Founding Fathers, and The Secrets of Washington, D.C., by Christopher Hodap, who also wrote Freemasons for Dummies. Uh, he, Christopher Hodap also appeared in a starring role in the History Channel's Secrets of the Founding Fathers and did a marvelous job in rectifying the numerous, and I mean numerous, mistakes that were made and gross exaggerations that made it in that very embarrassing production which blackened the reputation of the History Channel and for which they lost a great deal of credibility. Solomon's Builders relates the true stories of these visionary founders and the fascinating meaning behind the cryptic codes, enigmatic symbols, and intriguing architecture that is reputedly the basis for the sequel to the Da Vinci Code. Dan Brown's forthcoming novel, once called The Solomon Key, now renamed as The Lost Symbol. Welcome to 21st Century Radio, Christopher Hodap. Great to be here, Bob. Thanks for having me. Well, certainly enjoyed your performance there on History Channel. I think we were... <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, you really have not overstated the damage that uh, that, that show really did. And, and that's a real shame, because the people that started out making that uh, really did have the best of intentions and uh, and the wheels really fell off of it and that was a real shame yeah i don't think we're speaking out of turn when we say what happened uh, friends was a new group of young turks i mean <laughs> really young turks in the old says came in and they they really did change the philosophy of the history channel um, now, your assessment of the latest two-hour production of the History Channel's Secrets of the Founding Fathers, which you just passed on to us, um, the, do you think, uh, do you think, I, I, my major concern were some, over some real basic things there, Christopher. One was a, an interpretation of Novus Ordo Seclorum, 
which anyone who has studied Latin knows is the this, uh, new order of the ages. Exactly. And they refused. They refused to consider that and called it the new world order several times. Whoa, boy, you talk about blatant errors. That was just the beginning, though. Well, and 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 right down to the 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 the, the sort of dumb. Uh, uh, pronunciation of the word Masonic is Masonic. Uh, immediately, it's, it's like someone saying nuclear. It's, uh, I, the whole thing really uh, uh, left a bad taste in everyone's mouth. And and you're not kidding when you say it's a new regime at the History Channel because there is uh, uh, anyone who has watched the History Channel over the last two years has seen the major change that has gone on. Uh, in terms of the basic philosophy of programming there. Um, so it's been, the schedule is now dominated by Ice Road Truckers and Monster Quest and, uh, uh, you know, a world without people and, and this kind of thing. And and the people there are very proud of what they've done because they took their uh, their demographic that for a dozen years was was uh, people in their late 30s to their 50s, uh, usually men, and they've dragged that demographic down so that it's uh, now uh, uh, mostly uh, uh, 18 to 24 uh, uh, boys and young men, and that's the graphic they really the demographic that they really want to get, and they've done that by doing this kind of programming. So when the initial rough cut was delivered of this show. Uh, uh, the History Channel's answer was, nope, not enough sex, drugs, and rock and roll in that. Take it, take it back and fix it. Literally, they literally did that. So as a result, you have like the head of the uh, uh, American Hemp Muse- Museum sitting there going, dude, all the founding fathers smoked dope and they wrote the declaration on hemp, you know, and this kind of stuff. Yeah. I, 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 or, or having little old ladies making testicle jokes, you know. I mean, uh, it, it, Yeah, it, I couldn't it, believe that one. That yeah, I couldn't a, either. Oh, and what they did to George Washington. And well, and then, of course, uh, naturally, you can't be part of the uh, A&E uh, umbrella of networks without having ghost hunters in your show. So they they crammed that in as well, setting up an infrared camera one night uh, in the Hellfire Caves uh, under uh, uh, Dashwood's estate in England. And when a moth flew by the infrared camera, they go, there it is. There's the spirit <laughs> of Benjamin Franklin, proof positive that Franklin was a member of the Hellfire Club and roamed these caves. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, let's get on with it, with uh, your wonderful book. This, it, friends, look, there, I've read a lot of books in this area, but the way this book stands out, I think I'm going to quote. Uh, there is a saying that I used to love. Oh yes, that was Thomas Jefferson that said it mm-hmm. when he wrote his little uh, booklet. Well, what what ended up being called the Jefferson Bible, but as he said. The words of Christ in the Bible stand out like diamonds in a dunghill in comparison to what all of the other interpretations of everybody else who decided to get in on the act. And um, there are so many good chapters. Your history, I I learned a good deal from this book, and I love learning. This was fun. You write so well. It's clever, and it's funny. And... (laughs) I couldn't help but laugh a lot. I mean, and I, I enjoy stuff like that a great deal. So, congratulations! This is a really good, readable book. That this is the kind of book, literally, that should be in every every school. 
because you will find out things about not just the, the, the major founding fathers, but other founding fathers we're going to touch, touch on later on that, that just you just don't find anywhere else. So great going there. Now, you note that Dan Brown left clues on the dust jacket of the Da Vinci Code as, as to what his next book would be about. What kind of clues are you talking about? Yeah, back back when the original hardback edition of, two th- of, uh, of Da Vinci Code was published in, gosh, what's it been now, 2003, 2004, um, the, uh, the, the cover of the dust jacket had a series of, of uh, numbers and figures all over it, but, but some of the, the uh, numbers, there were longitude and latitude of, uh, of the uh, CIA headquarters in McLean, Virginia, uh, and not just CIA headquarters, but specifically of a uh, very famous sculpture that's uh, sitting outside of the CIA headquarters uh, called Kryptos, mm-hmm. which is a giant copper scroll uh, that uh, uh, the artist has uh, uh, the, he, he put it there so that uh, uh, professional government code breakers who walked by it every day had a puzzle to try and solve. And it's been sitting there now for... I, I don't know, 15 years or so, and and uh, and they have not yet solved all of the code in it. So, so that was one of the clues that it was going to be in the Washington area. The other biggest clue was that if you opened up the original hardback of Da Vinci Code and you read the inner flaps of that, if you looked very carefully, certain letters were actually printed darker than others. And if you wrote all those letters down in proper order, it said, is there no help for the widow's son, uh, which is a, a, a phrase that's uh, important to Freemasons. And, and, so, and then very shortly after the publication of Da Vinci Code, when Dan Brown was still talking to the world and, and talking to the press, uh, he said that the book would be about the Masons in Washington, and the Masons would be pretty happy with it because it, uh, uh, there was so much misinformation out there about them, and his novel would, uh, would address some of that misinformation. Well, let's hope so. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll see. And now that his, his books have already sold 80 million plus, and just about... Oh, the major media is really focused on this. So sometime in September, I think uh, everybody in the world will have heard about that particular Yeah, book. September 15th is the date that's uh, burned into the mind of every bookstore owner and uh, and uh, publisher. And uh, and uh, that's that's the day that it gets released. Uh, it's, it's being handled like a Harry Potter uh, release so that uh, at uh, 12.01 you can get your book. And Amazon is promising they're going to deliver the book by uh, uh, September 15th for anyone who's purchased it prior to that date. So uh, it is a huge, huge publishing event. No matter, no matter what you think of Dan Brown's books and his writing style and his plots, uh, you know there there are people that that sniff that they don't like his books and they don't they don't like his stories and they don't like his writing style. That's fine. That's fine. Eighty-one million people obviously did. Mm-hmm. Uh, or okay, let's uh, let's say twenty million of them didn't like it after they bought it. Okay, so sixty million people obviously did. Um, this is a huge, huge event, and the initial print run is going to be like six million copies just for the initial hardback. Uh, but your book was not written to second guess Brown's sequel, but to separate the truth from fiction. Now, um, who? Tell us a little bit about that. What kind of fiction do you find? And because uh, there's, I, I like to read his stuff because I'm enjoying it. 
you know, I can find all kinds of mistakes in it as far as I'm concerned, but that wasn't the reason, you know, that wasn't the reason why I got it. Well, exactly, and, and you know, it's funny because I've, I've, I've sort of been trying to, to get the, the, uh, the Masonic world uh, on my blog uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to take note of this and say, you know, whether whether you agree with it or not, whether you like his book or not, whether you think uh, they'll be coming and knocking on the door of your lodge for the right reasons or not, people are going to stand up and notice this fraternity in a very, very big way. Um, and, and their preconceived notions are going to be based on what Dan Brown writes in his book. Um, so you, you better get used to the idea that they're coming and knocking on doors, and they may not be armed with the proper information. Uh, I'm a big believer in in uh, getting as much truthful information out about the Masonic fraternity as possible. Uh, I've been criticized by some saying, uh, you're, you're destroying the fraternity by taking the mystique and the secrecy away from it. I, I, I disagree. I, do, I disagree. I disagree with that totally because I don't, I don't think those who are so deeply into, into the real philosophy and, and, and beliefs of Freemasonry and, and what they're working on wouldn't necessarily feel that way. Because well, it, yeah, this is the, this is the, if if you join a Masonic lodge thinking that it's going to provide you with the secrets of of life, the universe, and everything, and 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 be filled with all this mysticism and uh, uh, and super secret symbolism that that suddenly the heavens are going to open up and and you'll know the secret of the universe, it, it isn't going to happen. That's not what happens in a Masonic lodge. That isn't what Freemasonry was designed to do. Well, and like... there have been and there have been people over the centuries that have tried to make it that and mm-hmm. tried to add those things to it. But that's not really what the philosophy of Freemasonry is. No, it isn't. I think, uh, as you repeat many times, to make good men better um, is is uh, quite an important goal. We'll touch on that much later in our interview. Hey, we got to take our first break here, um, and when we return. I'm, we're going to talk about why was the creation of the United States different from any other nation with our guest, Christopher Hodap, the book Solomon's Builders, Freemasons, Founding Fathers, and the Secrets of Washington, D.C., Ulysses Press. Now, there's a name for you. John Lennon would be proud of that. Hodapps, H-O-D-A-P-P-S dot com. Hodapps dot com. Hello, folks. This is Peter Rowan. You're listening to 21st Century Radio with my dear friend Bob Hieronymus. Thanks for listening. Our guest is Christopher Hodap. The book is Solomon's Builders, Freemasons, Founding Fathers, and the Secrets of Washington, D.C. Excuse me. Ulysses Press. And go to hodaps.com. H-O-D-A-P-P-S dot com. Okay, did did you study up for this next question? Uh, uh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay, all right. Now, for a free free trip to Hawaii, okay? You got the answer to this correct, you win free trip to Hawaii. Uh, Why was the creation of the United States different from any other nation? Because they started with a blank slate. Uh, Because it uh, occurred... Uh, during the the height of the uh, Enlightenment period, 
where the rest of the world was uh, was in a, uh, a pitched battle over those who believed that uh, uh, monarchs and popes should be uh, were, had a divine right to rule and and should stay in power, and uh, the Enlightenment thinkers thought nothing of the kind, and uh, and so the, the the it was a uh, it, it was a, a harmonic convergence of all of these movements happening, all these philo- these uh, philosophies happening, and uh, and ideas of scientific change, and and so you had uh, uh, you had a group of men who came together at that specific point in time uh, that were able to uh, to actually put this great experiment into practice and say we're starting from scratch. Uh, so that's what made the United States different. It sure did. Now, you resisted writing this book at first, uh, but you changed your mind. What cha- how, what, how did you change your mind, or why? I, um, I, it was an inter- interesting incident. I was, I was still talking with the publisher, and I wasn't sure that I wanted to go uh, and do this project. And I, uh, I, I went to a gathering one night of, of young Masons and uh, felt thoroughly out of place since I was about 10, 15 years older than the rest of them. And one of them had brought his father. And uh, uh, he was a man who had uh, 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 fled uh, uh, Romania and, uh, in the 1960s when uh, Romania was still under a dictatorship and largely controlled uh, by the, uh, the Soviet Union. And he said that he told me he said that uh, he had read about the Freemasons in uh, in Tolstoy's War and Peace. There are extensive passages in War and Peace that uh, talk about uh, one of the characters joining a, a Masonic lodge and uh, conversations that he has with a with an older man who's a Mason before he joins. And he said I'd read about the Freemasons in in War and Peace, and and I dreamed of the day that I would be able to join a Masonic lodge. And so I, I uh, fled Romania as a young man in the 1960s, uh, escaped the country, came to New York, and as soon as I became a U.S. citizen, I decided to uh, to join a Masonic lodge. Um, Freemasonry can't exist in a society that isn't free. Well, uh, you must be psychic, because that's my question. <laughs> question. The question was, I'll hold it up to the microphone. There it is. Why is it that Freemasonry can only exist in a free country? And you and you just started to so why? Why is that? Because Freemasonry uh, espouses uh, free will. It, it, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the greatest thing that the designers of, of what became modern Freemasonry did was they said, uh, it, if, if you if you bear in mind when when modern Freemasonry began, which uh, it was in 1717 in London, um, you had just come out of a terrible period in England. Nobody talks about the English Revolution, but there really was an English Revolution where they were back and forth on the argument between Protestant and Catholic, and who was going to. Uh, 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 how the the, uh, the government was going to be run? They deposed and and uh, and killed the king. Uh, Charles II then came back and and agreed to uh, great restrictions on the monarchy. Um, uh, so so they had just come out of this terrible terrible. It was it was a 200 year period of of religious and political strife where you could you could 
literally do nothing but sit in your house over a 30-year period and either be uh, a loyal citizen or a traitor without changing any of your religious or political views. Mm-hmm. It just depended on who was in power at the time. And so when when men came together in 1717 to form Freemasonry, they said, you know, there are two things in this country that are getting people uh, killed after an argument, fights about religion and fights about politics. So let's not discuss any of those things in a Masonic Lodge. That's right. And they created a situation where men from every walk of life could come in, uh, high-born or low-born, no matter what religion they were, no matter what their political beliefs were, and they could come together in a Masonic Lodge and meet on the level uh, as equals, uh, didn't care if they were a member of the royal family or a shopkeeper, um, and... and, and, uh, and and just meet as men and brothers. Um, and, and so it was this very egalitarian concept. Well, you know, I just also want to note something you wrote on page 8. Freemasonry was outlawed at that time in Romania, just as it has, as it has been outlawed all across. Listen to this, friends. The Soviet bloc, Hitler's Germany, Mussolini's Italy, Khomeini's Iran, and... Hussein's Iraq. What does that tell you right there, friends? What does it tell you? It's not, has, has nothing in common with dictators. Exactly. Nothing at all. As a matter of fact, the first thing they do is get rid of them if they possibly can, in one way or the other, by almost... Now, now I will tell you, the, the, the one exception to that is Castro's Cuba. And it's a very interesting reason why. The Freemasonry still flourishes in Cuba. Uh, the Castro regime has never tried to shut down Masonic lodges. And that's because before Castro came to power, uh, 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 during the, the beginnings of the revolution there, uh, uh, Freemasons hid him uh, in, in one of the Masonic lodges, and he never forgot that, and so he never outlawed Freemasonry in no. Cuba. Well, but it's literally the only, the only situation where you have uh, a, a, a true dictatorship going on where the first thing they did was outlaw Freemasonry. Yeah. Now, now, you have some wonderful definitions of Freemasonry. Uh, would you define Freemasonry for us, please? Sure. My, uh, my, my, uh, my elevator speech on Freemasonry uh, is uh, simply that it's the world's largest, oldest, and best-known men's fraternal organization. Um, uh, mythically, it's uh, descended from the builders of King Solomon's Temple in Jerusalem. Um, and uh, the modern fraternity is believed to have developed from the uh, the craft guilds of European stonemasons who built the castles and the cathedrals during the Middle Ages. Modern Freemasonry uses the tools and the symbols and the, the terminology of medieval masons as an allegory for building temples in the hearts of men. Well, I also love what you had on page uh, 19, um, I'm quoting you, who you were quoting the Farmer's Almanac in 1823. A Freemason would be just if there were no laws, human or divine, except those written in his heart by the finger of his creator in every climate, under every system of, of religion, he is the same. You know, that, that to me, I find that extremely impressive. I know that when... Uh, uh, I think we all go through a period in time which we are atheists, and then you come to grips with things. But one of the things I enjoyed about certain, certain well-educated atheists is, is that by and large, uh, they would they would be ethical, 
regardless of whether they believed in uh, the deity or not. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, you know, it's right human relations there. Now, uh, you know, it's something, it's something I find interesting about that, that quote from the Farmer's Almanac, and, I, and, and, and I, I, I use that quote many times talking to people and saying, I find it interesting that at that period of time, the, 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 18, you know, the early part of the 1800s, um, that was stuck in the Farmer's Almanac uh, uh, because everybody in those days, everybody in society knew who and what the Freemasons were and what they stood for. Mm-hmm. They were, they were a, a, a common organization on the, on the community's landscape. They were, when, when, a, when a town or village uh, uh, started as, as, as the United States expanded, the first two buildings that were usually built were uh, the first church and, the, and a Masonic lodge. Um, and, and, and that kind of awareness of Freemasonry existed all the way up until about the 1960s. And then beginning in the 1960s, um, the, the, uh, uh, our, our age group, the baby boomers, decided that they wanted to uh, uh, pretty much reject everything that their fathers did, and you couldn't get much more establishment than the Freemasons. And so you now have a situation of, of two generations later of you say Freemasonry to most people and they, they, they give you you know, long lizard-like blinks like they were talking to an insurance salesman and go, what's a Freemason? Ah, I don't know what those are. Um, and, and it's been an enormous change in a very short period of time. Well, of course, our, there were some founding fathers, very important founding fathers that were Freemasons. What was the effect of Freemasonry on George Washington? George Washington um, had a uh, had a fascinating life. You know, we we know him as the hero of the Revolution, but he had a fascinating life prior to that. Um, in the uh, uh, in the 1750s, he, he turned 21. His uh, uh, his father had died. His uh, older brother had died, and and suddenly he inherited all of this property that had belonged to his family. Um, and at the same time, he uh, his older brother his his brother had been. Uh, uh, more educated than he has, and he always had sort of an inferiority complex. Um, and, and suddenly at the age of 21, he's thrust into being a very important uh, person in, in uh, Virginia society. Uh, it, it's sort of thrust upon him. And so in the 1750s, at the age of 21, shortly before uh, he goes off as a member of the uh, Virginia militia, um, uh, he uh, he decides to join a Masonic lodge in Fredericksburg, and throughout the rest of his life, there, there are not any more than about nine documented uh, situations that we can absolutely, for certain, say that he attended a Masonic lodge meeting. Um, there were certainly more. There were undoubtedly more than that, but there are only nine that we can actually document. Um, and and yet all through his life he continued to publicly proclaim that uh, freemasonry had a profound effect upon his attitude um, uh, washington was a just and upright man uh, uh, to begin with uh, it isn't that that freemasonry uh, took a, uh, a rough and tumble uh, uh, ignorant slob and turned him into a virtuous uh, uh, hero of the nation but 
he always said that it had a tremendous and profound effect upon him. And he encouraged, during the revolution, he encouraged, uh, uh, in particular, his generals. Uh, uh, an overwhelming number of his generals during the revolution became Freemasons at his request. Uh, uh, Freemason was very important to him all throughout his life. Yeah, I think it was 33 of his generals. Which, well, there, uh, there's a lot of other theories out this, about this, friends. I mean, I've heard, and certainly you, you, you noted this in the book, that some are referring to every general was, or almost everyone. And, and uh, this is one of the important things about your book. When you say something, it is credible and believable because of your research and documentation, which, unfortunately, my dear friend, and he was a dear friend of mine, Manley Palmer Hall, mm. God bless his soul, but he, uh, um, he wrote most of his books about, many of his books about Freemasonry before he became a Freemason. Yeah. And uh, they did the same situation, kind of, that Albert Pike went through. And, of course, you're bound to make very big mistakes. Uh, and they did. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's a shame because Manley Hall uh, has such a huge uh, breadth of work uh, and is such an important figure uh, on so many levels. Uh, and and yet so much of what he wrote, uh, I, I you know I hate to say it, were were lifted from other sources. Correct. Um, without attribution, he would just say it. Uh, you know, the the, the uh, one of the most famous is uh, his uh, contention that uh, uh, this this shadowy character called the Professor showed up uh, when uh, when Ben Franklin and a committee. Uh, from Congress were designing the first colonial flag in 1775, and they go to this this unnamed person's house, and they meet with George Washington, and this shadowy figure called the Professor shows up and uh, gives them guidance on the flag, and then he shows up again at the ratification of the Declaration of Independence. And and, uh, and Hall just repeats this stuff, which was just out of a it was out of a uh, pamphlet uh, from a Rosicrucian organization that was published in the 1800s, and he just repeats it as you know, oh, this is what happened. Yeah, yeah, it's the same thing about the flag and the great seals. As a matter of fact, yeah, he did exactly. The, he did the same thing with that. But but you know, I have high regard for him. But he and I fought for. I I think I have most of my scores and scores of letters from him uh we were fighting all the time but but i'd love the man i mean well you know i'd say where's the reference give me that re- <laughs> you know yeah because uh, i'm he was, here i uh, am he was beyond all that stuff you know? i know i know here i am you know, this is the way pike was and, and uh, uh uh my friend arturo de hoyos at the uh, house of the temple in washington is he has this life's work that he is attempting that that will go on Forever, I'm sure he is. He is slowly making his way through Pike's morals and dogma, attempting to figure out all of the references that Pike uh, used when he wrote it. And and because at the House of the Temple they have Pike's personal library there, uh, they see where all the bookmarks are and where he marked pages. And and you know, an artist trying to find where every single one of these references came from. Well, I'm glad somebody's doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pike didn't bother. No, he so, didn't. God bless him. Uh, you know, I I, 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 I hate to say, no, uh, I'll say this. There was a, uh, I, I'm, I'm all over uh, Masonic Internet forums all the time, and and there was a gentleman that uh, he and I uh, have uh, batting a friendly argument back and forth, and and uh, he he made the contention that uh, 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 writers like Pike and others, you know, especially during the Romantic period. Um, 
most of the writings were were not necessarily meant to be uh, sat down and read and studied. They were actually extensions of their public orations. They what they were really doing was writing down uh, what what uh, what they would use in a speech. And in those days, it wasn't uncommon for somebody to give a two-hour speech someplace. Um, and and so. Uh, his contention was that the, that these men would write this stuff down, but it was never re- necessarily meant for others to study over it and and use it as reference. And so they didn't worry about making attribution where they got their ideas from. And that these books, these long 800-page books like Moral and Dogma, were 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 meant more to inspire than to be actually truthful and factual. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether I buy that or not. It certainly explains a lot, but uh, um... well, at times I've made that mistake when they, you know, when you're uh, because sometimes when you're put in a situation like when I was at the State Department or something like that, and they're pushing you on certain information, and you don't have your references with you, and they don't care about that; they want an answer. Sure, yeah. And so you're bound to, you know, you might get most of it right, but you can't can't remember everything, darn it. Now, but we do remember something. We've got to take a break. Our guest is Christopher Hodap. The book is Solomon's Builders, Freemasons, Founding Fathers, and the Secrets of Washington, D.C. I'm Joe Sobrin, author of Alias Shakespeare, and you're listening to Dr. Bob Hieronymus on 21st Century Radio. Our guest, of course, is Christopher Hodap. The book is Solomon's Builders, Freemasons, Founding Fathers, and the Secrets of Washington, D.C., Ulysses Press. Go to Hodapps, H-O-D-A-P-P-S dot com. Do we think it's important? Yes, we do. That's why we repeat this title so many times. We want to make sure you folks get a chance to get a couple copies because you really will enjoy this book. Uh, Christopher, what was the Age of Enlightenment, and how has... Masonry, or how was Masonry the firstborn son of the Enlightenment? Well, again, as we as we talked about before, the Enlightenment was a a, uh, a period of great upheaval in in philosophy and and turning the status quo on its ear. Uh, when the kings ruled by divine right and uh, and uh, churches were uh, the church was was uh, run by. Uh, by the Pope and a very uh, strict hierarchy of, of church officials, uh, and, and particularly in, in countries like France, where the church uh, had tremendous uh, influence over over the government, um, and and uh, and things like uh, the the, uh, the church, uh, really up until uh, up until the last century in France, the church controlled uh, most of the schools in the country. Uh, so, so this was the sort of thing that uh, the members of the Enlightenment, or the, or the, the believers in the Enlightenment philosophies, were were rebelling against or questioning, uh, and, and they started from a scientific point of view, uh, uh, saying that if if you can determine how uh, how the world works, how the universe works uh, through the scientific method, why can't you ask those same kinds of questions about? Uh, the way society is running, and uh, suddenly they were uh, they found themselves on the uh, on the opposite side of of the uh, of people that believed in in uh, kings and, and churches running things, and and the rest of you sit down and shut up. When uh, when the French king sent troops in to bust up a Masonic meeting. 
uh, in Paris in the 1730s, uh, they found the most terrifying situation they could possibly have stumbled into. They found uh, shopkeepers, uh, members of the nobility, landowners, and even a, a, a black trumpeter from the palace all sitting together in a Masonic lodge, and they were voting on who was going to be the officer. You just didn't vote in the 1730s. That's not something that common people were uh, were allowed to do. Uh, and and so this is one of the reasons why Freemasonry got uh, got a uh, a bad rap in many countries and and certainly in an ongoing uh, uh, pitched battle with the Catholic Church over uh, who uh, uh, over the rights of man when uh, uh, when uh, oh gosh I've forgotten his name I forgot which pope it is. Um, uh, Leo the Thirteenth issued his encyclical against the Freemasons. Uh, said that uh, you know he railed against the Freemasons as a bunch of uh, so-called free thinkers uh, who had the temerity to believe that uh, uh, the common people should control their own destiny. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, if uh, if he found uh, uh, Masonic philosophy that terrifying, he must have found things like uh, the U.S. Constitution is, is absolutely pornographic. Well, it must be, no doubt about it, because this is another great section in your book. I mean, there are a lot of real gems dealing with the Gutenberg printing press. Now, uh, you, you say this so clearly. You know, well, what effect did Gutenberg's printing press have on the church and the state? You know, I know many of our listeners are going to be shocked to, to learn that that most people even didn't have a Bible weren't even allowed to read the Bible. Someone well, people, else, sure, people couldn't read because number one, they didn't have anything to read, uh, so there was no point in reading. Uh, the only commonly circulated uh, book uh, among any class, really, uh, up until the late Renaissance, was the Bible. Um, uh, reading material was something that you kept in in, uh, in the Medici's private library or in uh, monasteries, where they were all hand copied very slowly and slowly matriculated, and were hugely expensive to have a to have a library in in 1600. To have a private library was unheard of just because of the sheer expense involved. Um, when Gutenberg's uh, the printing press suddenly uh, made it. Uh, uh, fast, cheap, and easy to uh, distribute uh, uh, printed matter. He knew that the, the the one way that he would get his invention sold across Europe was to to print a Bible because it was the one thing nobody could really argue with. If you printed a Bible, uh, uh, you, you nobody could argue with you circulating that. Well, sure they could because the church wasn't too crazy crazy about common people reading the Bible. Uh, this is why Latin held on as the official language uh, of the Bible right up until that you had lead-ups to the King James version of the Bible that were published. But the concept of publishing a Bible in the vernacular across Europe, in German or English or or uh, Spanish uh, and so forth, was just an anathema because you weren't supposed to be able to read that. That was something right. that the, the the church was supposed to be making. They were supposed to tell you what that meant. They were supposed to read it to you, um, and and explain the significance of it. So, uh, so the printing press turned the world upside down. And as you said, this one paragraph on page forty-one, I've got to read part of it. 
The mass of humanity in Western society had always gotten its news and information through the channels of power, carefully filtered through the proper authority. An English translation of the Bible in the hands of every man was a terrifying image for a typical bishop or cardinal of the period. Kings and electors were similarly unnerved by political tracts in the hands of the masses. At hand was the dawn of a new age in which political authorities found themselves at war with a machine. Ah, yes, that says it so clearly. I mean, you know, the common man really was not supposed to be sitting down reading the Bible. We're, we're living through this again now as, as newspapers are closing left and right and, and the old traditional forms of news gathering and dissemination of news have fallen by the wayside and people are, are turning into the box in the corner of their office or their living room and they're, they're looking on the Internet and they're finding news where they want it. Now, Christopher, how had Freemasonry figured out how to run a democratic society and make it work? Well, Freemasonry, uh, anyone that's ever been, you don't necessarily have to be a Mason, but anyone who's ever uh, belonged to a, a modern uh, organization that elects its own officers uh, uh, and, and, uh, and, and elects new members um, uh, understands how all of that works, and we take that for granted these days. But at the time, in the in the early to mid 1700s, this was radical stuff, and and having uh, 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 people across all all different classes, all different uh, uh, economic lines, uh, uh, voting and deciding on their officers, and and uh, and and amending their rules and changing their their bylaws and this sort of thing, this was unheard of, and yet this was. Uh, this was really radical new kinds of thinking uh, to have an organization that did that. Uh, the Freemasons, uh, when they, uh, um, when when uh, Dr. James Anderson sat down and and or the Reverend James Anderson sat down and, and wrote what were called Anderson's Constitutions uh, in the 1720s, they were uh, a collection of rules that were based on rules that were found in very very old documents there's a there's a a 16th or a 15th century document called the Regis manuscript that uh, that contains the rules that that controlled the medieval stonemasons guild and how they would uh, initiate new members and how they would uh, elect their officers and this sort of thing within their organization it was really one of the first labor unions and so anderson and the Freemasons uh, in the 1700s took those ideas and applied them in in a more modern way in terms of how you set up an organization that uh, that not only was just a group of uh, 15 or 20 guys meeting in London, but something that eventually, in a very very short time, spread all around the world. Um, and, and yet you had this central organization that that was in charge of of chartering new lodges they had they enforced regulations on how you brought new members in they uh enforced uh how the uh, the ritual that was used for doing that the ritual ceremonies they had to standardize those they had to come up with uh what was what they referred to as a provincial government for freemasonry in terms of uh, you would have representatives that went to the american colonies that that went to the Caribbean that went to uh, uh, you know the the, uh, the Oriental colonies or the African colonies that that were growing, um, and and so uh, you have this representative government that that was working.
working very, very well for the Freemasons and had been working very, very well for about 60 years before uh, you get to 1776. So here you have a working model of, of representative government that's egalitarian, that's based on voting, that's based on, on democratic principles, uh, which is something that really hadn't existed in the world uh, uh, since uh, Greek and Roman times. And, of course, uh, those democracies, if you would want to call them that, or at least representative form of governments, um, are, are paled in comparison to to uh, the republic that we have in America. And we're going to have to stop there. We'll come back with our guest, Christopher Hodap, Solomon's Builders, Freemasons, Founding Fathers, and Secrets of Washington, D.C., Ulysses Press, Hodaps.com. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. This is the alleged Dr. Bob Hieronymus, a lowly Ph.D., hanging out in this part of the universe. And sometimes I know where I am. Lots of times I don't. Our executive producer and research assistant, who is my boss, who makes sure that i got to do things right many times, is Laura Cordner. And, of course, our engineer is Jake Bryant. Our guest for the next 20-some minutes is Christopher Hodap, Solomon's Builders, Freemasons, Founding Fathers, and the Secrets of Washington, D.C., Ulysses Press. Go to Hodaps, H-O-D-A-P-P-S dot com. Chapter 4, War Among Brothers, contains some Freemasons who impacted America in their struggle. Of course, you uh, discuss Edmund Burke and Paul Revere, Dr. Joseph Warren. But tell us about James... No, I, I was going to say James Galloway, but tell us about Major General Gilbert Lafayette. Sure. Uh, uh, General Jubal Lafayette, uh, one of the uh, famed heroes of the Revolution, uh, decided uh, when, when Benjamin Franklin came to Paris looking for experienced military men to come and help the, uh, the colonial army, uh, uh, Lafayette was uh, fascinated by the very concept of, of, uh, of the formation of America. And so at the age of 19, he, he actually joined the military very, very young, uh, when he was uh, 15 or 16. And uh, so at the age of 19, uh, he decides to come and help the United States. The, the king briefly, the king of France briefly, uh, decided that he really didn't want a bunch of uh, French officers going over there uh, to help the Americans. He, he thought that might bring down the reign of, of terror from, uh, from the, the British on them. And so Lafayette stole away in the night. He snuck out on a ship, and uh, 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 ships chased him all the way across the Atlantic to try and stop him. He and, uh, and uh, several friends that came over. And when he appeared in Philadelphia announcing that uh, Franklin had promised him he could be a general, uh, uh, Congress looked at him like the dog talked and went, you know, who's this kid? Um, and uh, uh, Washington took to him almost immediately, and he became uh, one of Washington's uh, most uh, most trusted generals in a very short period of time. Um, and and Lafayette would go back to France eventually, and uh, and work out more military aid for the United States for the for the colonies. And um, and over the years, uh, uh, there have been discussions on on Lafayette's Masonic membership. Uh, there are many that thought that he joined an American military lodge. But evidence has come out that he actually joined a lodge in Paris shortly before he came uh, to America. Um, after that, he went back. He became part of the uh, the civil government in France. Um, 
He uh, he actually uh, uh, was at the Bastille when the uh, Bastille was stormed at the beginning of the French Revolution. Um, he kept the mob from uh, from uh, tearing apart the royal family uh, 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 when they were there. Um, and throughout the course of the French Revolution, uh, things went back and forth many, many times in terms of uh, who was on the right side of the revolution. And uh, you know, they killed the vast majority of their uh, of the revolutionary leaders over the course of the revolution. And uh, and uh, he was clapped into prison. Uh, uh, his wife joined him in prison. Um, I mean, it's a fascinating, fascinating life that that Lafayette led. And after the the revolution in France died down, he came back to the United States and uh, and toured the country uh, in the early 1800s, and he was hailed as a hero everywhere he went. Uh, And in fact, uh, he so loved America that when he died in France and, and was buried in Paris, um, he asked to be buried under American soil, and so a load of dirt from the United States was taken there and, and was placed over his grave. And interestingly, his grave was the only place in Paris under the uh, Nazi occupation that the American flag was allowed to fly uh, without being touched. Uh, the American flag flies over his grave today. I, that's remarkable. That is. I, I just learned so much, and uh, there's so many things you touched on. That that one area in which you know his his uh, his wife it was Adrian. Adrian, yeah. yeah. She yeah. went to Austria with her children. They begged for Lafayette's release, and when the Holy Roman Empire emperor refused, she and the girls joined him in prison. His prison right. cell. They they lived with him in prison for two years. Yeah. God, just what a story! Yeah, it's an incredible oh. story. And, now, why? And and and, and, so, and it, yeah, again, it's one of those those things that's sort of lost to to Americans. We we don't we don't know about that anymore. But at the time when he came back to the United States and and spent like a year and a half touring the United States after the French Revolution, it, the 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 excitement of Lafayette coming here was just unbelievable. He was hailed as such a hero. Yeah, you also pointing out something but very few people do and that is that it was a tragic irony that the uh, debt incurred by Louis the 16th in assisting America in its revolution helped bring his financial ruin to France yeah it really it, it helped to destroy the French economy and 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 was just one more thing that helped to, to lead to the to the French Revolution yeah yeah well is there here's another here's another area here. That, that I just thought was so much fun. Is there any parallel between the Roslyn Chapel and Roslyn? <laughs> I gotta ask you this. <laughs> you had to bring that one out. Okay, yeah, it was uh, a lot of fun. Isn't right, it? This is right, fun. Look, I know the clock's ticking here, but uh, yes, uh, uh, Roslyn Chapel in Scotland that uh, that appears at the end of the Da Vinci Code. If that's the only place you ever heard of it, has had so much written about it. Uh, in in terms of uh, its mystical origins and the carvings that are in it and all this fascinating stuff and and many have alleged that the secret treasure of the Templars may be buried in its in its uh, foundations. Uh, not there's any evidence of that, but at any rate, there is actually a Roslyn Chapel uh, uh, just across the Potomac from Washington D.C. Uh, you can even ride the metro there to the Roslyn. Uh, uh, station, and when you get off at the Roslyn station, you look across, and there is indeed a Roslyn Chapel 
uh, uh, right there in front of you. And uh, uh, at its very it, foundation, it, it, it truly has a secret buried treasure in its foundation. Mm-hmm. When they built the church. They decided that they wanted to have a constant, steady source of uh, income, and so they built it over a gas station, and it has <laughs> subterranean tanks filled with gasoline. And I can't think of a better treasure to have with uh, oil prices being what they are. Yeah, well, after noting the name Solomon is related to the Hebrew Shalom and the Arabic Suleiman, I hope I pronounced that correctly, both linked to peaceful or complete might this mean that the title of your book, Solomon's Builders, can be viewed as builders of peace or completion? I love that. I love that you say that. Yes, that, uh, uh, that is absolutely uh, uh, the way that I view Freemasonry, that, it, that uh, they really are. The Masons are builders of peace. That It cuts across all political, social, religious lines and uh, brings men together. Uh, without the things that divide them. Well, that's why it strikes me so deeply uh, the, 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 uh, concerning the fundamentalist conspiratorial interpretations of Freemasonry, in which it's, they, they charge, their charges are exactly the opposite of what Freemasonry is about. Yeah. And, and uh, the, the fact that uh, the History Channel would allow that to happen and let it stand is a bit more than I can stand. I, I know. Right. Hopefully it won't be rerun. <laughs> now, I, I understand. You, <laughs> I understand. Well, if it's not and rerun. You and I both know that it will. But. Yeah, it will. Yeah, that'll be shown a thousand times. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, I did shows with them, and I'm sure you have too before. Well, I keep seeing that show with uh, David Icke showing up periodically. and playing. Oh, oh, heavens, how can this keep be rerun? Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, it is. That's just amazing. But, but you're going to be in Annapolis. I am going to be yeah. in Annapolis. I'm going to be at Annapolis Lodge number eighty nine, and uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, it's not open to the public. It's for Master Masons only. But if you're a Freemason, within the sound of my voice, uh, yeah, come out to Annapolis Lodge. Um, at any rate, and then uh, in uh, November. Uh, my new book, uh, you had to know this was coming, uh, Deciphering the Lost Symbol, yeah. uh, is supposed to be out uh, by Thanksgiving. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Going. So that means I should, I'm supposed to be writing right now, but I'm not. And uh, so, yeah. Well, well, good going. I look forward to reading it. I, Christopher, thank you so much, not only for joining us, but for educating me in other areas that I, I certainly needed educating in. And it, uh, it's, it's been quite a quite a joy reading your stuff and watching you in action well thank you very very much it was a tremendous pleasure to be on the show with you and and i uh, i always wanted to meet you we 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 almost crossed paths in the hotel when we were working on that dumb show <laughs> and uh, so this is uh, this has been a great opportunity to uh, to speak with you and i appreciate it thank you christopher now right. uh, christopher hodap solomon's builders freemasons founding fathers and the secrets of washington dc Ulysses Press, Hodaps, H-O-D-A-P-P-S dot com. This is one of the most important books in this field you need for your library. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company, and our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus, and remember to get a haircut.